what you'll hear on Patreon. And a lot of people on the right have felt they've been berated with that. You're racist, you're racist. And I feel like what they've, some people have done in response is just try and pick what they think the worst thing you could be is. What could be worse than being racist? Oh, you're a pedo. And so then they want to <laughs> they want to say, oh, drag queens are groomers and the LGBTs are shoving it down our throats. And and that term grooming, which is such a horrible term, you know, you know, grooming. Uh, there's one version of where they mean, oh, you're grooming them with an ideology. But also we all know the other definition of grooming meaning, oh, you're 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 preparing that child to be abused. And that's totally, totally bad faith and, and really um, it's really ugly. And just because people have felt that they've been on the receiving end of horrible accusations from one side of the political spectrum doesn't mean that you kick the football back with your own sort of nasty little version. We have to try and be, be honest and honorable in how we look at these things. I'm Vanity Von Glow, internationally ignored superstar. I'm a cabaret artist based in London. I self-identify as a global icon, um, but, but really I'm, I'm a cabaret nonsense. So I'm to be found in the late hours of the day, entertaining people uh, with a martini in hand. You've called yourself an internationally ignored superstar, but that's not true. You mentioned that you were working on, a, you were filming a music video. So what are you working on right now? What's your next launch into yeah. stardom? <laughs> I love it. Um, so we met uh, recently uh, and actually a few years ago, we initially met because we were on a panel. And one of the themes that kind of runs through what you do and some of the things you talk about in the public sphere is the concept of freedom. But at the same time, as you have this sort of proliferation of choices, you have this paradox of, of um, a denial of responsibility in some sort of quarters of society, a denial, denial of responsibility for those choices. That, free, that freedom that you have to choose what you're going to be um, could be really, really liberating, right? So I'm freer than I've ever been because I'm not born a peasant and dying a peasant, right? Within, you know, within modern society, what you're born as doesn't necessarily dictate how you're going to die. Um, and so we have this unprecedented freedom and we have this choice about who we become. But at the same time, these choices exist when we don't have a strong kind of subjectivity, a, kind, a strong kind of sense of, of the human actor that's capable of making those judgments and accepting the consequences for those judgments. So you wind up with this kind of, um, this situation where the choices are biologized. So you can like pick from a huge range of genders, but if you say like, that is my rational choice, I decide to live like that, it's like, kind of beyond the pill, you say, no, I was born this way, right? Or, you know, the idea that, uh, that homosexuality, I'm not saying that it is, I'm just saying, the idea that homosexuality is a choice is just beyond the pale, right? No, I was born this way, and that makes it okay. Well, why would it be wrong if it was a choice? You're kind of implying that it's the wrong choice. Um, and so I think what happened was this 
unprecedented freedom came at a time when, right after, you know, when we saw the results of human freedom, apparently, in the 20th century. Look what happened when human beings tried to direct the future. Look what happened when human beings were sort of standing on the edge of a cliff, right? Throughout human history, we always thought something would hold us back from destroying ourselves. The angels of our better nature, um, something would swoop in and stop us from toppling over the edge of the cliff. And then we had World War II, <laughs> the Holocaust, and good God, we're picking each other up and throwing each other over. And we realized that human freedom, that that was the lesson, unfortunately, that we took, that human freedom can lead us to utopia or it can lead us to Auschwitz. And unfortunately, it, left, it led us to Auschwitz. And that's the lesson that we took. So in that context, you have this desire to deny human freedom, to, or to deny that these choices are really my choices. It's not me, it's my biology, it's my parents, it's my genes, it's this or that. Um, and so I think that, that there's a powerful invitation in society to sort of reject those choices and reject the, the consequences of human freedom. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a psychiatrist. I have no professorial approach uh, to any of this. Um, actually, I'm a drunk. And um, this is probably the first time I've had a microphone in front of me and shan't be singing Celine Dion. So, um, but it is interesting to me as a cultural observer, which I consider myself to be, uh, to see the way in which normalcy, uh, perhaps more ephemeral than ever, uh, is in many ways the source of the anxieties that we've heard described today. Uh, the uh, Belgian uh, therapist Esther Perel described that uh, because relationships now are so defined by the ability to choose from a buffet of options, uh, that you can have uh, polyamory, you can negotiate hall passes so that you can have different arrangements with your partner, um, this uh, leads to a system in which in relationships we are all constantly negotiating the terms of everything all the time. And, um, you know, we all get, uh, what is it called, um, decision-making anxiety. So uh, I do worry. I worry about the idea that with, because I think that we know that uh, certainly young people today are character characterized as being more anxious than ever, or certainly they might be more anxious than ever, but they like to tell us that they're more anxious than ever. Um, and I, I worry that the diagnostic approach to that, where every teenager uh, has an anxiety disorder, uh, they're not just shy or a little socially awkward, they kind of have an attached group membership by their diagnosis. I worry that that encourages children, young people, to believe that their value has to be connected to their membership to an external group. And I think that normalcy in that instance is a low aspiration, um, and it's certainly an ill-fitting standard to give young people for acceptance. Um, it shouldn't maybe come as a surprise that I, I like weird people. Um, and I, I do wish sometimes that we had this spirit of the defiance of 80s punk rock. You know, back when people were facing harder times, arguably, than they are now in this country, certainly. But there was a defiance and a self-confidence to their deviation from norms, and they weren't trying to pursue the sort of uh, the, the norms of the time. Um, also, uh, the defiant attitude and approach of artists like Barbara Streisand and Shirley Bassey, the people that I've always loved have sort of dripped in self-confidence. And I don't know that that's necessarily the same uh, the same type of creative 
inspirations that young people have today. The increased anxiety and then increased, an increasingly anxious times, people do want codified norms, they want rules. I don't think it's helpful for us in society to have people that lack the conviction and confidence of, uh, I mean, I think it's in the interests uh, of the people who our anxious teenagers claim are our oppressors. It's within the oppressor's interest for us all to be anxious and terrified all the time, because then they can impose uh, in rules and stuff that we don't like. And um, I think, you know, drag is in many ways like a, it's freedom on display. It, it, you know, it pushes boundaries. <clears throat> and I, I want to kind of focus on that as the theme. But before I do that, you said there was a time where you thought you were going to rule the world, but instead you decided to rule the nightclub. <laughs> I <laughs> wonder if you have since given up your ambitions to rule the world, or if you could tell me just a little bit about Kind of how that happened. How did you wind up ruling the nightclub? Well, I think what it was is, uh, <laughs> I wonder when I said that, but it's the sort of thing I would say. Um, when I was younger, before I knew that I wanted to be an entertainer, I mean, I was very attuned to entertainers. I was very drawn, I, you know, all people enjoy entertainment, but I had a particular appreciation for how shows are put together and how, how comedians make people laugh, how musicians do their work. Uh, but I never really thought that's what I was going to do. I was quite politically motivated as a teenager. So I was very interested in world affairs. And so at that time, I think I thought that I was going to become a lawyer or a politician or something like that. But actually, I've ended up instead uh, uh, doing what I do now, uh, which is actually a far better fit because I'm a fundamentally unserious person. And yet you are, you are very serious. At the Battle of Ideas recently, you gave a talk on your letter on liberty. Is that right? That's right. We met when we did that panel uh, like five years ago and, uh, and then again this year. Uh, and it was great that to be asked this year to contribute a letter of liberty to the Academy of Ideas and they print them every year. And I've, I've read what letters on liberty in the past and found them really stimulating and about things that I know nothing about, like Bitcoin or, you know, folk music or these different areas. And because drag's been a contentious art form in the last couple of years, um, and it's become something that gets, it's become a bit of a football in the discourse. Um, I think that's, that's the backdrop against which they asked me to write a letter on liberty. And my letter is really a defense of drag coming from the perspective of artistic freedom which um, is something uh, that I actually think comes somewhat under threat, not just from the censorious reactionary right wing who might be you know, traditional or religious, but actually artistic freedom comes under attack as well from the progressive left and from even my own performing community sometimes. Now, drag excludes the ordinary. Drag is interested in excess, both because it worships it and because it's amused by it. The woman face argument to me seems like a reflexive retort which shares some DNA with the perpetually offended types who the right-wing pundits are usually telling to get a grip. So honestly, our, our identitarian moment, it exhausts me. You know, people seem more glued than ever to their masks and their characters and their identities. And a fixation with identity, I think it drags people into categories that sometimes separate us rather than connect us. 
So if you're looking for an ardent proponent of the religion of a thousand genders, I'm not it. Um, I do, of course, have non-binary friends whose creative and inventive reflections on gender I find interesting from an artistic and philosophical perspective, but I don't have much time for political and legislative wrangling on the matter. I feel like the grasp for recognition from clerics of the state leaves creatives frustrated, and I think it's a waste of their gifts. I think that non-conforming minds are best commissioned with the creation of beautiful, inspiring, or even just entertaining work. Non-conforming minds provide a service to society when they give us some existential relief from the grey, dull drudgery of our mundane lives. <laughs> a true drag queen acknowledges that there is a Puritan dislike of mirth and laughter, and that the very moral pomposity which drag serves to disarm. Um, by the way, some drag artists are often just as guilty as their critics on Twitter of this moral pomposity. That is not lost on me. Um, but look, not all drag can be great. And not every creative choice is the right choice. In fact, I would argue that with drag, let's be honest, half the fun of it is that it is often completely crap. <laughs> Ten pints in when you're wearing your knickers on your head, singing, gimme, 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 a man after midnight at two in the morning, and the drag queen is still going, it doesn't really need to be good anymore, do you know what I mean? So as I say in my letter on liberty, while drag can provide you with much to think about, it's not advisable to overthink it. A true drag queen is unfazed by the rabble outside protesting men in dresses. A drag queen may sympathise with concerns, but fearless artists do not capitulate to them. As my personal idol, Bette Midler, once said, fuck them if they can't take a joke. <laughs> so how did you get into drag to begin with? You, from, it's, a, it's a big switch from like a lawyer <laughs> trajectory yeah. to whirling the nightclubs. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, when I was when I was young, I grew up in in rural Scotland, and so you know, a small village, and I was out as a gay person when I was about fourteen, which isn't uncommon today, but my generation really were the first generation of people who did that. Um, by which I mean, at my school, nobody had ever come out before, or at least not in the six years above us that we would have known people from. Um, and, you know, according to teachers, nobody had, that they hadn't known of. So we were the generation that watched Will and Grace. We were the generation that, uh, you know, the world had relaxed a bit. Um, and so because I was out and I was gay and I was in a rural community and it was only me and one other gay guy, my best friend, we were very keen to go to the city and experience our lives. So I was promised in the literature of the, of the gay history, books like Gay Metropolis, um, and books about the history of the gay male identity. There was we were promised drag queens, so we were, we thought we were going to go to New York or London or, in my case, Glasgow, and <laughs> discover uh, this world where you know uh, there would be fabulous drag queens and, and gay sex and all those things. And while there was certainly lots of gay sex, um, there just weren't that many drag queens, and. Uh, the couple of queens that I knew in Glasgow, I just always felt like, oh, I get what they're doing. I enjoy what they're doing, but I want to do something different. I want to draw influence from different personas. 
And so I kind of felt like if you don't see the thing that you want to watch, then just make it yourself. You seem to take your, your you know, it's an art form and you take it very seriously. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about who is Vanity as a persona? Yeah, so uh, uh, the way to think of it is Vanity Von Glow is a late 20th century diva. So think Celine Dion, Mariah Carey, that kind of ilk. There's definitely a sprinkling of Elizabeth Hurley in this persona. Um, whimsical, but quite grand and tragic as well. So that's why when you come to my shows, which are music shows, um, the music is, you know, it's power ballads or it's torch songs. There's disco as well, but there's always that interaction between celebration and tragedy and sadness. And that's that's what I like in, in because the, the, the grandest emotions are quite tragic, you know? And so they're the fun ones to do on stage and then pivot immediately to having a laugh again. And I think mm. sometimes audiences don't get to come into contact with that. Uh, I think of Bette Midler, who used to, you know, break your heart with a song, but then have you howling with jokes. And Adele does this as well. You know, she'll, she'll, her repartee is really funny. Uh, but there aren't that many people that do that anymore. So that's what I, that's what the vanity character is supposed to enable. So by circa 2018, was vanity quite well developed? I've been doing this for 15 years and the, the persona has been there kind of from the beginning and has made sense or at least is cohesive on stage, I think. Um, I think that's kind of why I've been able to do it for 15 years as it works. But yeah, by, so by 2018, certainly. You know, I've established a reputation. I've been working nonstop. So tell me a little bit about the the rally. What what happened at a, a free speech rally in 2018? Now, last Sunday saw protests in London by right-wing activists on a so-called Day of Freedom, but one person's presence gained more attention than any other, the drag queen Vanity Von Glow, who is here. Good morning. Nice to see you. Now, you, it has caused a lot of controversy, hasn't it? Because it was attended by some sort of very far right-wing people. Why, why did you attend or what, what, why were you asked to attend? Um, I'm not certain why I was asked, but I felt like um, anyone from the centre or the left has as much entitlement to express themselves freely as the people on the right. And I think there's an argument that the right has managed to sort of co-opt freedom of speech a little bit lately. So what I wanted to do is go and express myself the way I always do, dressed like this, singing songs. And um, what I wasn't there to do was to espouse my own political views or in any way to endorse anybody else's. I mean, the, the problem with this, I guess, is that it, it may have been sort of tagged freedom of speech, but it was or is being seen as, in effect, a right wing rally. Now, a, a right wing in some cases who are perhaps racist, perhaps homophobic, um, not the sort of people you would normally be mixing with. No, not the sort of people I'd, I'd, I'd normally be mixing with. Um, you know, to be clear, I'm not a fan of hate speech, um, if, if, that's, if that's people's concern um, about, uh, about the language used on the right and on the far right. I've been on the receiving end of hate speech all week, so I can tell you it's, it's not nice. Um, but, you know, I mean, for example, the, the former leader of the BNP has called me a, um, 
I've written it down because I keep forgetting it. The sickening, I'm a sickening gender confusion. Right. Um, I think the head of the alt-right in America has called me a degenerate. Um, so, you know, needless to say, I don't endorse the, the far-right views being espoused. No, well, look, I've got to say, I have, I have some sympathies with you because if you're getting that from the far-right, and it's a dreadful language, but you're also getting a lot of stick now from the left <gasps> because just because you were there. Oh, my goodness. I mean, they're really, in some ways, they're just as bad. I mean, I would, I would thank the left because they do seem to have a slightly more expansive vocabulary than the than the far right. So they're not just calling me a degenerate, they're also calling me a fascist um, for having associated with myself with this event. I mean, I feel a little bit like if you stand still for more than five minutes at the moment, the left go that far in that direction that we're all far right. Um, the problem is that the far left don't just go for calling you names. Their sort of party trick at the moment is to try and go for your source of income. You know, at the moment they've been making sure that um, that my my shows are cancelled. They want to see me unemployed. Possibly they want to see me homeless. And that's quite an aggressive tactic, simply for disagreeing with my motives for attending an event. I actually believe that art, art and comedy and humour and entertainment comes from a people-pleasing desire to uh, to bring people together to celebrate life. And for me, because I'm lucky to be a confident person. It's to share an infectious confidence with the audience. So for me, when people misunderstand a performer's intent and try to characterize it as purposely hurtful or mean, and then they try to censor that, which is, is what I think a lot of cancel culture does, that really was bothering me because as an artist, I believe in freedom. So in around 2018, you know, there was all sorts of just, Twitter storms happening every day over a different thing. And, and you know, so-and-so would get cancelled for saying that and so-and-so would get cancelled because they posted that 10 years ago. And, uh, and uh, Twain got in trouble. This was very specific. Shania Twain got in trouble for saying that she might have voted for Donald Trump, mm -hmm. you know, if she was not a Canadian. You're Canadian, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yeah. <laughs> right, so you're a you're country woman, Shania. If she, if she hadn't been Canadian, maybe she'd have worked for Trump. If she didn't live in Switzerland, maybe she'd have worked for Trump. And everyone was trying to cancel Shania Twain. And I was like, guys, this is crazy. Like, we need to have a bit of generosity towards each other. That's the backdrop against which I decided to perform at a free speech rally. And it was held in London um, because it's a free speech rally. Uh, obviously, a lot of the big fans of free speech are quite odious people. Um, with quite fringe views because they they need they need the free speech thing to sort of <laughs> to, to make it uh, make a comfortable playing area for them to say whatever they want to say. Uh, but you know, if you're defending free speech, it doesn't it shouldn't matter who you're sharing a platform with in that regard. Free speech is free speech. Uh, so uh, I got in a lot of trouble for doing that event um, from my own community, and because it got picked up by media, it kind of became the thing that a lot of people recognized my name for, for a while. Um, so it was a controversial thing to do, to perform at a free speech rally and for anyone, you know, for your viewers and stuff, it, it was Tommy Robinson was there, um, uh, and just, just a few other dickheads, really. Um, none of whom I've ever supported, none of whom I've ever said I supported, uh, but in that moment of time, it wasn't about whether or not I had said anything. It's just by sharing a platform, I was, I was in trouble. So yeah, I got, I got canceled or postponed. Postponed. Um, you would think though that free speech would be something that 
a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds would support. And even though you may not agree with people on everything, around when it comes to like a single issue, you can kind of throw your weight behind it and the strength of numbers can can do something in full knowledge that on the next issue, you're going to come to blows probably. Yeah, I, I wonder if people are, are rethinking this a bit at the moment because I know, uh, and I'm by no means qualified to, to speak in any depth about Israel, uh, but but I know that people on the on the progressive left side are feel feel to some extent censored or or uh, they feel frustrated. They feel frustrated. They think the media and governments are 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 uh, making the case for Israel. Uh, people from the Israeli side feel that they're not getting to say their piece or that the zeitgeist is against them. And actually, I, I've noticed people starting to go, oh, actually, this free speech thing that we sort of pretended we didn't like for the last six years, maybe we do like it again now. And it, for me, it revealed that sort of bequeathing the the you know, the, the banner of free speech to the right was never going to work because as soon as it, you know, it, it was it was never a safe kind of place. I mean, for me, free speech was always the province of the left, you know, from liberals, you know, socialist communists as well should be in favor of free speech and freedoms. But it had kind of got wrapped up as a right wing issue. But now, um, you know, people will show their true colors when shit hits the fan and they will, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll use the exact same things against you that you tried to use against them. And that's kind of what's happening now. They've started to use cancel culture. Uh, yeah, this is one of the things that you just you said something that reminded me of something that annoys me, which is that you know I feel like free speech it, it should be a, well is or should be a leftist value. Um, oh yeah, that's what annoys me. It annoys me that that for maybe about six seven years there, really you only heard about free speech coming from the right. And me as somebody who's more, I associate my my beliefs about people's rights and how we should organize, it are more leftist, really. And it always annoyed me that, and the minute I or anyone would make a defense of free speech, rather than that being received as a defense of free speech from the left, people would immediately say, ah, you're right wing. I'm like, no, 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 it's a mistake to, to give the trophy of free speech and allow it to be something that's owned by the right. You know, it, it, it's it's an inheritance that we all have, and especially artists should should be making the case for their own freedom to say and create the work that they want to create. I also wonder if it's a little bit of um, uncertainty about or um, lack of faith in one's own arguments and your ability to convince people, or or the idea that people can never be convinced, which I think is a really scary and dangerous road to gro to go down. Um, and one thing that I like about you, and I feel like you're a bit of a kindred spirit here, is um, when I was preparing to talk to you, I, you know, I was doing a bit of reading and uh, I looked at some some clips online, and you're on all sorts of different TV channels, talking to a huge range of audiences, um, hostile people, defending drag queen story time <laughs> to people yeah. who would normally just be in a bubble. And just go off about, oh, this is so terrible. This is grooming and so on. And you, in, with grace and, and patience, brought them on side. Joining me now is the fabulous drag queen and performer, Vanessa Von Glow, to talk about drag story time and suitable entertainment for children. Um, is, it, is it a storm in a teacup? Is it just like far-right extremists sort of trying to ruin drag? 
Um, I don't think they're bothered about ruining drag. I think that some people have concerns about what's right to show kids. And I do understand that. You know, I've made a defense of um, drag queen story time because uh, there's definitely a version of that that I think is totally acceptable for kids. You know, if I were to open a book now and read to kids, I don't think those kids are being uh, exploited or traumatized. I think it would be very boring for me. I mean, I can't think of anything worse uh, than uh, performing to children, and I have performed in Sheffield. Um, so I make my defense of it without it being something I'm interested in myself, because I do think that some of the artists are trying to uh, bring some joy to young families with their performance and with their art. They're, um, they're not really in the best position to necessarily defend themselves, because the intensity of the conversations become really a bit, uh, a bit much. So that's really interesting. I was speaking to Nick before, and um, I've got this feeling that the, the kind of the seedier aspects of what, what I would call wokery, you know, this sort of woke mm -hmm. thing, uses sort of minority groups to, to advance the division in society. And, you know, and I have this great memory of this drag show in, in Blackpool that I went to. It was incredible. So it feels like uh, drag queens have been taken out of the area where they've been performing for years mm. and now they're into the limelight. And do you think that's a result of the choice of drag queens or do you think that's a result of the choices of a movement behind that? I mean, I think that, that drag queens are autonomous creatures. Um, performers have no difficulty finding spaces to perform and do their art. And drag has a very, very broad spectrum. So on the one end, you've got the sort of glamazon model, which is your supermodel type of drag. Uh, you also have your more subversive, perhaps quite sexually um, provocative work. And then you've got the good old fashioned pig in a wig at the end of the pier as well, which we have much of here in the UK. Um, but there's also now, because of the popularity of drag race and stuff like that, um, you've now got that glamazon Almost there's like TV presenter style drag, the Holly Willoughby drag. Um, I can think of some friends of mine who perform in that way. And there's nothing really in their show that's, you know, particularly subversive or unacceptable. It's a bit camp. It's a bit silly. And that's the sort of queen that I could see reading to kids. And it's not a big issue. So I think the reading to kids thing is absolutely fine by yeah. me. I, I, and <clears throat> I don't have any problem with it, weirdly, for someone who everyone thinks is a fascist Nazi. <laughs> And I wondered is, if that's kind of what you had in mind when you accepted that invitation to speak in 2018, that there's going to be a huge range of people there and they should know free speech is for everyone. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but was that part of the, the, um, the impetus? Yeah, kind of. And thank you. Uh, uh, it, it's nice when I, you know, it's nice to go on TV. I can't deny that. Like I, I enjoy having conversations about things that are substantive. It's nice to be invited, but it's also nice to have acknowledged, you know, it's quite a difficult thing to do. And I'm used to having the guardrails off in a nightclub. I mean, I've been told off on GB News like three times because I keep <laughs> accidentally swearing. I mean, I myself have behaved immodestly in the past, but I kind of... Who hasn't? Right. But I draw the line at being called a nonce. Right. Yeah. And that's part but of... But I, I, I draw the line at... Um, sorry for saying nonce. Oh, it's yeah, sorry, it's sorry. that forbidden word from um, the watershed. Sorry, I said nonce. Oh, now I've said it three times. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Thanks, Ofcom. We're all friends again. And I know. We, You're like, oh, whoops, was I not supposed to say that? <laughs> I, I know. And like, 
once it was after the watershed, but they rerun that show at like four in the morning or five in the morning. And so they couldn't air the rerun because I'd sworn on. Anyway, I'm like, oh, it, yeah, no, it's a difficult line to toe. Yes, I did accept those invitations to talk about Drag Queen Story Hour, knowing that, uh, I mean, if you look at the, I actually screenshotted a lot of the comments people would leave who reviewers of GB News. There'd be, I mean, really horrible stuff that people would say about Oh, me. no. <laughs> Hey, I'm a deranged so sex sorry. clown and all this, you know, and it's crazy because I don't really care, uh, you know, what a random person on the internet thinks. Um, but I really do take it in the neck from those people for going on. And, uh, but still, I feel like I don't go on there and call them all idiots and dickheads. I go on there and say, <laughs> look, I, I understand that you have a difference of opinion and I wonder if you've thought about this this way and then you can think about maybe we still disagree. That's okay. And just so I think it's been productive having those conversations, but I don't know that I've changed anyone's mind about anything. Uh, oh, I, you know, yeah, I felt, I thought that you did. I didn't know what the other side was, you know, on, right. on a lot of issues that you talked about. So I, I think it's, it's the people who get the most angry are the ones who comment, but that's what happens is that you can get a hundred nice comments, but You'll only remember the one who called you a whore or whatever. Like, yeah, I mean, that's that's yeah. the case for me. It like sticks in the back of my mind. So, so some something that's interesting is I I I've been on GB News, for example. Um, I've been on talk TV and GB News twenty times. Um, mm. and the first ten times that I went on GB News, I had friends in my life telling me like that they were unhappy with me for going on saying you're going to get cancelled again and it's going to be your fault. Why are you going on there when Nigel Farage is on there on that channel and stuff like that? And I said, look, when did going on a TV network, not just a program, mean that you endorse anything that anyone else says? I endorse what I say most of the time. Uh, <laughs> and and let's just restrict my, my... I'm responsible for what I say, not for anyone else says. But also... Somebody's got to go on and make the case to people that disagree with our, say, the lifestyle that I live or the lifestyle of a gay person or a trans or a queer person. And so to me, I'm like, do you just think we shouldn't talk to anyone? Now, it was frustrating to have friends say that to me because, you know, you want your friends to know you. And I'd be like, well, guys, like this, I am that, I am that bitch. Like I will go and talk to the other side. And also I will get in trouble sometimes from you all thinking that I'm not pure enough as a gay person or a queer person or a leftist or anything like that. But actually, cut to a year down the line, and when I'm making the defense of the things like Drag Queen Story are, suddenly all these friends are going, oh, actually, this was a really good, you took a really good opportunity to make a case. To and I'm like, yeah, because you have to build the relationships with, with the people at that network and with that audience. You know, just get to storm in guns blazing and, and, and go on the attack, which is all that people seem to want to do with their activism um, in this moment. And that's why I'm always clear, like, I'm not an activist. I'll have conversations, but I'm not there to, you know, to wave a banner necessarily. Yeah, I, I was actually just speaking to someone recently and um, he's really, really brilliant. And I was like, you know, it'd be great if, if you know, why don't you come on my podcast? Why don't, you, why don't you do more public stuff? Like you have so much to say. And he was like, oh, no, I've been asked by some unsavory characters and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I get it. 
I get it. Some people are just not up for it. And it sucks when you get hate from both sides. Like I am, I'm hated equally by the left as I am by the right. You know, that sucks. And you know, you get fans or whatever, but you do get a lot of hate. But at the same time, like I used to be like that myself when I was younger. Like I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to be this big academic and I'm going to be respected and so on. And I'm not going to go on these TV shows. And, this. and like, and then I get invitations with something that I thought, this is wrong. There's something really bad happening here. And I have something to say about it, but it's framed in such a way that it's like only the right cares about that, or mm -hmm. this is about the suffering of children or something like that. So you're really putting your neck on the line if you, you know, you're sticking your neck out if you say something. But then I had to be like, am I the kind of person that will shut up for my own self-preservation when there's a, something yep. bad is happening in the world? And I had to kind of say, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not that kind of person. And so, yeah, you just kind of have to take the hit sometimes. And you're not going right. to win every single one of those those fights. Sometimes it's a bit comforting to feel like, I mean, not to like, oh, pat myself on the back, but because sometimes when you're, when you're, when you've done something unfashionable or, uh, yeah, when you've done something unfashionable or morally unfashionable, you know, it can feel really confusing and you're worried about your own moral fiber. Is everyone else right? Am I, am I a fascist? She thinks I'm a fascist? I don't control the railways or the flow of commerce. And, um, <laughs> but actually, now I'm a bit older, I'm like, I think that if every decision you make happens to be in alignment with the fashions of your in-group and your social group, then they, they're probably not really your decisions, right? Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.